Welcome back to The Author Biz. I'm Stephen Campbell, and this is the show where we deliver the information you need to become the CEO of your author business. Today's show is all about using the data you generate with your author business and using it to make more money for your author business. Our guest this week is Brian D. Meeks. Brian, who along with co-author Honoré Quarter, just as in today, just released a new book called The Prosperous Writer's Guide to Making More Money. Brian is a full-time author who writes fiction under his own name and also under a pseudonym that matches the name of a protagonist from his Underwood, Scotch, and Rye series. He's released 12 novels with a 13th on the way. In addition to his novels, he also writes nonfiction with co-author Honoré Quarter about the business of writing and publishing. Their latest book, as I mentioned earlier, is The Prosperous Writer's Guide to Making More Money, Habits, Tactics, and Strategies for Making a Living as a Writer. As you'll hear during the interview, Brian is also an unrepentant data geek who translates his many years of experience as a data analyst with a major insurance company to his work as an author. And I've got to say, Brian is a funny guy. He, he's able to translate that sense of humor into his writing, and he takes a subject that could be a little on the dry side, uh, data, data analytics uh, for writers, and, and makes it very entertaining. So I think you're going to enjoy this show. We had a few sound glitches. We had some problems with Brian's microphone that we, we tried a couple different mics for him, uh, but the problem was always there. Uh, the glitches are sort of few and far between and don't deteriorate at all from what I think you'll find is a very enjoyable interview. On a personal note, I had the opportunity to meet with a real podcasting hero for me. Uh, it was a week ago last Friday at on Sanibel Island. I met with uh, a man named Len Edgerly. Len runs the Kindle Chronicles podcast. He's been doing the podcast for the last eight years, and I won't say I've heard every single episode, but I've probably heard most of them. His is one of the few shows that I have listened to on a regular basis over the last eight years. Uh, my podcast listening tends to ebb and flow as I develop new interest in things, but of course my interest in publishing has remained consistent, and Len also Oh, he kind of reports on Amazon to a certain extent. He has a reporting background, and, and he uses that background to really deliver useful information to people that are interested in Amazon, self-publishing, and publishing. So his his podcast is, is fascinating. It, it's one that I have enjoyed listening to for years. And he has this intense love of reading and technology that is just absolutely infectious. Anyway, we had the opportunity to meet over coffee on Sanibel Island, and the conversation just flew by. Len's uh, a couple of years older than I am, and I I've got to say, when I thought about doing the AuthorBiz podcast, I thought, hey, if, if Len Edgerly can do a podcast, he's older than I am, then I can do a podcast. And so I owe uh, this podcast to Len, and I'm, I'm grateful for all the hard work that he does with the Kendall Chronicles. Len's show comes out every Friday. And I think this coming Friday, he's going to have a guest that we have had on the show here before. So that'd be a good time to give the show a listen if you've never heard it. I think you will enjoy it. 
As always, we'll have links to everything we mentioned in the show notes at theauthorbiz.com, where you'll also find a picture uh, that Len's wife was kind enough to take of the two of us after our conversation on Sanibel Island last week. All right, let's get to Brian Meeks and learn how to use the data you're already generating to maximize the income in your author business. My first question to Brian was to ask how he became so interested in data. <laughs> that's, that's a great question. When I was, must have been, oh, it's been 17 or 18 years ago, I finished, well, I, I guess I finished my degree in economics at Iowa State University when I was 29. I'd gone to school. College didn't really take for me. When I went back to school, I found that I had taken an econ course and done exceedingly well. And I guess it was the joy of, of finding it so intriguing that got me into econ. And economics is basically high-level algebra. A typical econ problem might be nine pages of algebra. And I had one professor in particular who would assign these problems, and we'd have one each class, and we'd come back and bring him the answer to be nine pages of handwritten algebra. And when you got it back, it was either, I think he did a smiley face or a red check mark. And that was it. If it was a smiley face, you got credit. If it was a red check mark, there was a mistake somewhere or multiple mistakes, and you didn't know where, and you had to redo it. And the red check mark was such a soul crushing thing. It only happened to me once. But Conversely, the joy of getting this massive prog problem correct was euphoric, and it, it got me completely sucked in. And so then after college, I did a couple jobs that were okay, bounced around a bit, and I ended up at Geico just because I needed a job and was on the phones. I was selling auto insurance. An opportunity came up at the corporate office in Chevy Chase, Maryland as a data analyst, and so I did a 50-page a report of one aspect of GEICO that I thought was being handled poorly. I did my own data research, wrote this whole thing up, sent it in with my application. The vice president in the department, in the marketing department, it was enough to get me an interview, and I succeeded. It got the job and did that for seven and a half years, and it was absolutely wonderful. For me, I guess the hook for the data was similar to the mathematics in that it was similar to a treasure hunt. I might do 20 different studies for Geico and only one of them would uncover something that could then be used to improve the bottom line. That one time versus the 19, not failures, 19 just uh, information that wasn't necessarily moving the ball forward, that one win was way better than the 19 losses. And so I became addicted to it. And it's a great skill to have as an author because it lets you really maximize what your book's potential might be. All right. We are recording this show, but it's going to go live on February 20th, which is the day your new book that you've uh, written with Honoré Quarter. Uh, goes yes. live, and the title of the book is The Prosperous Writer's Guide to Making More Money. And that is I, correct. I had the opportunity to read an advanced reader copy of the book, and it just 
it hits me where I live because I am a numbers guy and I'm a data geek, not a, not a super data geek like you are. I, sure. I like data, but I mean, you, you eat this stuff up for lunch. And, <laughs> and I, I found it interesting the way the book started because Honoré, I, I know from having interviewed her before, she is absolutely not a numbers person. And it, it's no. interesting that the two of you um, chose, chose this particular effort. Yeah, well, Honoré and I became friends at a conference in Austin, and I think it was simply my level of love for numbers and then subsequent conversations we would have where I would get excited about, oh, I tried this advertising and look what it did to my numbers. And she just kind of got sucked into my my world. <laughs> And you do you do a great job of of that in the book. I, I've got to say, what could be a fairly dry topic. I mean, you have a really funny writing style. I was sitting <laughs> in a doctor's office yesterday, reading this, waiting to be called in, and I'm just laughing in the doctor's office, reading a, a, a essentially a book about analyzing data to make more money as an author. Not the kind of thing that you would think would be funny, but uh, there is a lot of good stuff in there. A lot, and I I really excited about the book and I'm excited for people to have the opportunity to to get this information in a way that's easy to consume and and it makes a lot of sense. Well that was my hope with the humor because well you enjoy numbers a lot of authors who have gotten into this perhaps through a path of other artistic endeavors maybe they enjoyed painting in junior high music these other things and They've always dreaded going to math class or they've told themselves a little voice in their head their entire lives they're not good at math. Math phobia, which actually has a name, and I, I think it's in the book and I, I don't remember what it is. Uh, a friend of mine that read it pointed out there's an actual term for math phobia. Mm-hmm. These people, I didn't want them to shut down at the word data or shut down at the word math. And so my hope was by putting in humor and silly book titles for my fictional examples and so forth, that the laughter would sort of quiet their their tiny voice that's saying, don't listen to this, math is evil, stay away from it, you can't do math. Because the realities are anyone can do math. And I think I, I talk about this a little bit in that we have a natural tendency when there is a task that we're not sure how to do, to put it off, and I know I do. If, if there's something like learning how to use Skype, the first time I used Skype, I probably him and hawed for three weeks before I finally logged on and tried it, and 15 minutes later, I was great. But because mm-hmm. it was an un- unknown, there was so much stress built up, and I feel like there's a lot of people who feel that way about mathematics, and if I can make it a little bit humorous, and show them that the formula for ROI is pretty simple, and I tried to write it in a way that wasn't going to be scary, that you know they can get beyond that. And once they're doing the basic stuff, that's kind of what they need. I also tried to talk about mindset, and if people are familiar with the way I think about data and the questions that I ask, maybe they can start to emulate that. And once you have success with something, when you use data to actually make money, that does a lot for calming that negative inner voice. Yes, yeah, the light bulb 
goes off. So let's let's talk for a little bit. As as business people in general, and if you're an author, you're a business person. Uh, sure. You have products for sale, and those products are generating data, whether you know it or care or not. They're generating yes. data. So uh, let, talk us through what should we be tracking at, at, at the highest level? What should we be looking at, and w- what are the metrics that we should be concerned with to help us maximize our income? And you, you told a really funny story in a really clever way in the book with a, uh, a nice opening hook and then delivered about halfway through the book with the answer to the question. But the question was basically, you know, I did this one little thing and I realized that it had cost me $60,000. And it, it's, it's the kind of thing, it's sort of a copywriting gimmick that you, you confess to later on in the book. But the, the idea is in our minds, it's like, what did he do? What did he do? I don't want to do that. Whatever it is, I don't want to do it. And you know, you really deliver when you when you uh, when you get to the end of it. So, it, you give a lot of great examples of how using the data that we're already generating can save you a lot of money or help to make you a lot of money. So, how do we do it? Well, that that's a great question. The first thing, and I'm actually building as we speak. Well, actually, not as we speak, but by the time the book comes out on the 20th, there will be a companion Excel workbook. This is a very basic tool. The one that I use myself is spectacularly complex, and I I couldn't figure out a way to make it usable for the masses. So Mm -hmm. my idea is I've created this Excel workbook that will allow you to dump in to it your Excel data that you can download from your Amazon AMS, or well, not the Amazon Marketing Service, your KDP page. When you go in and you look at your numbers, there's a button you can hit and it downloads in Excel. And I'm creating this so you can take that data and pop it into this tool. Mm -hmm. The idea then is I built a report that has in it the things that I think one should be looking at. So as an example, one piece of metric that most people wouldn't think to consider is a seven-day moving average. So that's simply you have a book and one day it sells three, one day it sells six, one day it sells 15, then five. It moves around so much that it's difficult to see if the trend is moving upward or downward. But if you have a seven-day moving average, it sort of flattens those numbers out and you can see where you're going. This is important, especially if you've just tried something new. Let's say, as an example, an author has a new book and she is going out and doing podcasts. She's doing a dozen podcasts over the span of, say, a month, and she wants to see if that has impact on her sales. Well, there isn't going to be any data from Amazon that says, Joe bought your book because he listened to Stephen Campbell's podcast. But if you knew that the seven-day moving average before you started appearing on the podcast was five sales per day and pretty flat over the previous 60 days, but then for that month, more and more podcasts are coming online where there's more opportunity, and you see that now it's seven and then 8.3 and it's trending upward – That may be an indicator that there's value in doing the podcast, and this woman has 
uncovered a methodology to help with improving her book sales. It could be anything. It could be Facebook ads, Amazon ads. All of these things impact how our sales and downloads behave. So seeing that seven-day moving average is going to give you some good information. Another metric that's incredibly important that I love to look at is the Kindle Unlimited page reads. Now, of course, this is only data that is available to people who are exclusive. But the reason I love it is that in the old days, well, the old days, a few years ago, (laughs) we would get paid based on the download. So there was a pool of money. Amazon divided it up among the authors who had a download that month. If you had two downloads, you might get $1.43 times two. It changed every month. That's great. It's good information. But when they changed to paying authors based on the amount of pages that were read through the book, then we got much more granular data. I love looking at the page reads because if I am trying something new, let's say I'm running a new ad, whether it's on Facebook or Amazon, but it's it's new ad, it's new ad copy, and I feel like it's going to really pull people in, then the ad turns on, there's impressions, there's clicks, and I start to look at it and I can see that sales have gone up, but then the page reads will be a lagging indicator. A lagging, lagging indicator is simply something that trails the initial event, and that absolutely makes sense because a person who downloads a book at 10 at night, even if they read most books in one or two days, they're not going to go through the entire 300 pages that night, so you'll get credit for most of those pages over the next few days. Looking at your page reads and how they trend tells you about the success of your ads. And this all goes back to sort of the hook you mentioned earlier with the $60,000. My love of writing had been limited to novels. I enjoyed sitting down for 50 to 60,000 words. I was a panster. Now I'm a bit of a plotter. But when it came to writing the 300-word description, (laughs) oh, my goodness, that was the worst thing. I think I equated it in the book to, in my mind, it was equivalent of fruit and jello, which I think is an abomination. And so, or maybe it was peas. I don't recall. It was either peas or I think it was the fruit and jello. Could have have been the fruit and jello. But the point is, For me, it was just a terrible, terrible task. And like I said earlier, that's one of those things that I could have a book done and ready to publish, and the only thing I hadn't completed was the description. And that would hold me up for three weeks because I just didn't want to do it. Well, what changed my life was I reached out to Sean Platt, who does another podcast, uh, self-publishing podcast. He is a former copywriter. I asked him, I just sent him an email, I said, Sean, I want to learn the art of copywriting. I think it's important. I'm not any good at it. What book would you recommend? And there's a a book by a gentleman named Sugarman called Ad Week, something or other. It's it's a big, long title, but if you look up Sugarman or Ad Week, uh, Copywriting Handbook, you'll find this book. And it's mostly examples from the 70s. But the art of copywriting comes through. And he's writing copy for magazine article or magazine ad copy, newspaper, and so forth. I would tell people not to be 
put off by that because, again, the art of copywriting is what you take away from the book. And so I read this book. I was excited. I sat down. I redid one of my descriptions using the methodology that he talked about, completely revamped the description immediately. The next day, page reads went up. And what that told me is I was sending X amount of clicks through to that page and my conversions had improved. More people that subscribe to Kendall Unlimited who are getting the books for all intents and purposes for free, they were deciding that it was worth the price. And in this case, the price was their time. And I was getting more of them to dive into the book. Of course, we're making money by the Patriots. So that was a valuable thing, and it was immediate feedback. Naturally, I started going through and doing it with each of my books. And in every case, the description mattered. Without going into the weeds too much, I knew that across my books, typically I would convert one in every 20 to 30 people that clicked on whatever it was that was sending them to the description. So it could be an ad, could be something on your website, could be anything. Could be people listening to this podcast. It could be, if, yes, if, yes. If, if 30 people from this podcast decided they were interested in reading my satire under Wood Scotch and Rye, 30 people would go, and with the old description, one of them would buy it or download it. That was what I was getting. Immediately upon changing the description, it went down to 1 in 6 to 1 in 12. I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation based on, because I have all my data for, I know how many impressions, how many clicks. I knew how many people I was sending to these books. I knew how much revenue I had generated. And I just looked at the 12 months previous to that revelation, did a calculation with 1 in 12 instead of what the reality had been, and the difference in revenue was about $60,000. Significant, significant. Significant. Now, you you have all this data. You're you you collect it because it's the kind of person you are. You keep track yes. of all this stuff. Um, yes. It, so, for the average person that's out there listening, who is not keeping track of all this stuff, they might change a description and say, "Oh, wow! You know, I sold uh, four more books today." You know, they might not even sure. be thinking of the the seven day average. I did something yesterday, and I had. This thing happened sure. today, so they quickly draw a, a correlation. And it's it's not only possible, it's likely that you will draw incorrect uh, correlations when, when you look at information that way, just like two separate points in time as opposed to having this data that, that you have collected and that is available to us to collect. So how are yes. you keeping track of all of this information over the course of – of time. So you're talking about impressions from ads, impressions from your website, impressions from, you know, all of the different things you do to market your book. How how do you keep track of it all? Well, like I said, I built myself an Excel workbook and I've actually had I have several different workbooks where I keep information. When I worked at Geico, that was kind of my job. I would build these. I had one workbook that took me 3 months to build. It was. It had probably close to 200 pages of uh, Visual Basic code in it to make it work. And when I got done with it, the my boss showed it to his boss, who showed it to the head of the IT department, and I actually got to show it to a friend of his that worked at Microsoft. And I mean, it was 
I'm really into Excel, maybe even uh-huh. more than data. And so I keep a ton of this, but again, not everybody, n- nobody really needs to go into it at the level that I do. Part of it is my passion for the data. If you just keep basic things, for instance, you can download the last 90 days of your your sales and your page reads from Amazon. That's a lot of good data. And as long as you're updating that after, a, you know, well, 90 days is plenty of data to analyze. But if you're going to be doing this for years and years and years, you may come up with a question three years from now and want to look at something over a long period of time. Well, if you have three years worth of your sales and page reads data, nothing else, there's still valuable treasure that can be found by looking at trends over time. And so the important things is if you're just keeping the Amazon data as as the bare bones minimum, but then in a sheet, you also track important events. So as an example, I had a cover that I created for the first book of my detective series. Mm -hmm. Six, I ran a promotion to give it away for free using this uh, one particular venue. They ran it 24 hours. I had 2,200 downloads. Six months later, I had gotten a new cover. It was a better cover, a cover artist that was vastly more skilled than myself. Hmm. I ran the same ad on the same day of the week because I wanted to try to control as much variance as possible. That ad yielded 5,800 free downloads, and the only difference between the two was the cover. So if you do something for your book, whether it's writing a description, changing a cover, running a Facebook ad, creating a video that you're putting up on YouTube, it's really easy to just keep a single file with a column that has the dates of these important events. If you know that on July 13th, you posted a video on YouTube as a book trailer and you see that date but then again say three months later all of a sudden the impressions take off say uh you know end of august or end of september whenever note that date all of a sudden september 13th for whatever reason somebody shared that video and you saw your impressions go through the roof just put that date into your little thing a month later you decide you want to go back and look at it well, you can, you'll have these different events. And so as you're just looking at sales over time or impressions over time, if you see a spike or an upward trend, you may ask yourself naturally, well, what caused that? Well, maybe it's something you did and you can look back through your history to see, oh, that's I forgot. Yes, I put up the, the YouTube video. Or even more interesting is all of a sudden, Sales have spiked, and you haven't done anything. You have no idea, but sales went up by 20 units per day. Pages are through the roof. Well, the first thing I would do is I would go check and see if the book trailer I made for that took off. Maybe there's a website. Like I would do a search on Google and see, did somebody that is a book blogger happen to find my book and write a post on it? Maybe they're a big deal. 
did Oprah talk about your book? I mean, if it goes from zero to two million sales, <laughs> that might be the first place to look. Th- that that <laughs> there, or Bill, Bill Gates. So it, it works both ways. If you've got your sort of chart of events, and, and I try to keep track of everything, then it helps you with your detective work when strange things happen. So okay. I, 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 did, did that answer the question, or did I get too deep into the weeds there? No, you answered the question, but let me let me ask a different question that that came to mind, and it's it's just something that I see doing these interviews. I I talk to uh, a lot of authors who are extremely successful, and in general, they seem to really know the data. Uh, is there a correlation? Do, do you think in, in in your experience between having a firm grasp of the data and your overall success uh, as with your author business? You know, that's actually a really good question. I think it's interesting that with anybody that I have sort of tried to help understand their data and gotten them into the habit of just looking at even the basics on a daily basis, once they're beyond that point where they have fear, like even with Honoré or what have you, if you're doing something on a regular basis, it tends to stick with you. So Though I spend a lot more time than probably most people need to looking at my data, because I'm looking at the same thing over and over and looking for patterns, I'm really familiar with the data. I can quote things from a couple years ago. I can tell stories, and I remember the exact specifics because I've looked at it so often. So it's the same as with anything, whether it's practicing an instrument or learning to play chess. Just the act of tracking your data every day and getting the habit of asking questions. Because the first time you ask a question, go back into the data, find a reasonable answer, something that says, it looks like I did this, and it had a positive benefit, well, the next thing you're going to do is test it. You're going to try to do that again with a different book or do more of it with that same book. And it works a second time. Well, the excitement, again, discovering the treasure, that's going to stick with you. And even if you don't look at those numbers again, three years later, you're still going to remember the data. And so by doing it every day, even if you don't think you like data, the first time it leads to treasure, you're going to find data is kind of fun. And all of those successful authors, it, it's pretty difficult in my estimation to get to, you know, five figures a month. I have friends that do six figures a month. And to do that without watching how things are going, without checking this promotion versus this promotion is pretty hard. It's There mm-hmm. really isn't that much luck. And even if they're not data people, just being involved in it on some level because they want to move from where they're at, at $50 a month to $100 a month to $1,000 a month, just looking at it all the time, you start to become part of your habit and you become a data person. Another benefit that I can see from really understanding the data and, and under, making the effort to understand the basic numbers, at least, is that it, this is a world in which everything changes constantly, seemingly on a on a weekly or a monthly basis 
where the thing that was working for you know romance authors three months ago is no longer working for romance authors. Now it's working for thriller authors. I mean, just weird things like that that you just look at it. And if if you're spent, if you're one of those people who's getting a positive ROI, a return on investment for your advertising, you might just say, well, I'm I'm going to spend a hundred dollars a day. Why wouldn't I? Because I'm making a hundred and twenty-five dollars. And sure. all of a sudden something changes. And if if you're not keeping track of the numbers and and you don't understand why it changed, you might either be costing yourself a lot of money or missing a, a great opportunity. That's actually a very good point. There was a venue, an advertising venue, and I'll not mention their name because I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, and it certainly wasn't their fault, but it's one that I used over and over in 2012, 2013. Every time I would run an ad – it would it would yield one to two hundred unit sales at ninety nine cents. I was always thrilled with the results. Back then, there was a, a nice little tail for a few days after that, where I would get sales at full price. And then, December of two thousand thirteen, the ad stopped working, and it was through no fault of the of the venue. What had happened is on December third or seventh, uh, one of those numbers, Facebook changed the amount of organic traffic they would give to posts. So this is a group that had over 500,000 people that liked their page. And typically when I would run an ad through them, they would post, they were posting it on Facebook. That was the ad. Mm -hmm. About 40% of those 500,000 people would see it. And because mystery genre is one of the more popular genres, it would drive 100 to 200 sales. But then all of a sudden, in literally a day, it went from their ad reaching you know, 40% of 500,000, so you know, a couple hundred thousand people, to reaching 10,000 people. I spotted it immediately. I knew what happened because, again, I, I watched my data. And the first time I ran uh, an ad, well, I I saw that the Amazon thing happened because – or not the Amazon. I, I apologize. The Facebook change happened because everybody was talking about it. And I knew that this venue was mostly driving their sales. So out of curiosity, I ran an ad after this change and sure enough, I had maybe 15 or 20 sales. Now, that venue has since shifted their, their, their advertising to a more email-centric, and they, they've come back nicely. So if you, if you know who they are, you, again, I'm not bashing them. They, they took the change that happened, and they rolled with it, which is great. You have to have some awareness of what is going on with everything that you do, because there were people that I would see in forums, on Google+, Facebook, that would be lamenting how their ads just weren't working anymore. And in their mind, it wasn't things had changed on the venue's end. Their assumption was either their book wasn't any good anymore, they had run too many ads, it had been saturated, and Saturation doesn't really happen that much when you're only dealing with one to two percent out of a you know, few hundred thousand people. A lot of people see an ad, but it doesn't really register. And so that wasn't the issue. So they were moving forward, making assumptions that were not correct. And that's why you, you need to pay attention to the data or you can 
be led astray. You can make incorrect bids, incorrect decisions, and it costs you money. Mm-hmm. Now, there was a section in the book that sort of surprised me when I got to it, but it, it excited me as well. And I, I want to bring it out. I don't, I don't want to go into a lot of depth about it because obviously sure. we, we want people to uh, to pick up the book. But sure. I was surprised to see a section basically on uh, techniques for using data analysis for selecting the right keywords. And that's that's something that whenever we talk about keywords on the show, it get, it gets people's attention. There are always questions that come up. So, can you talk a little bit about that and and just you know just highlight the reason you put it in the book? Well, the the keywords the keywords is tough because one of the components of keywords is that when you're doing research, and I dig it into a lot, you get a you get some bias from the fact that if you're using your browser and you're not using it in an incognito mode, which sometimes I forget to put it in that, mm-hmm. if Amazon knows who's browsing, they're delivering things in a slightly different way than they would deliver it to Stephen Campbell. So if you and I both do the same keyword search, our result our results are going to be similar but not exact. If we did a keyword search on you know, a book like my book, Killing Hemingway, you might see it on page 12. I might see it on page 15. Mm-hmm. So it isn't, it isn't exact. And I, I, I don't want people to think that it is an exact science, but in knowing that limitation as I'm going into it, knowing that my data is going to be somewhat skewed because, uh, well, because uh, you know, Amazon tried to deliver me the correct stuff. I then started using the incognito mm-hmm. uh, browsers, and I was getting better data. And it was simply a matter of thinking in terms: how can I use keywords to be a bigger fish in a small pond, and then try to be in a bigger pond and keep improving the keywords over time? I think the important thing for me is that. I don't do it on a, a weekly basis, but a few times a year, I try to go through my books and look at different keywords and try to find ones that work better. It's the same with the advertising. There can be a word that you use in an ad that may be more powerful than other words that you've used in the past. My best ad ever, and it had 800% return on investment, 800%. And the ad was for my satire. It was more snark than a snark eponymous in snark town on a snarking spree. That's that's what had me laughing in the doctor's office. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. First off, a snark eponymous isn't a real thing. Snark town doesn't exist. And what exactly is a snarking spree? But somebody that reads that and laughs aloud in the doctor's office, if they buy your book, the chances that they're going to enjoy it are near perfect. And not only did I have an 800% return on the ad, for the period of time that I was running that ad, my reviews were almost all five stars. They, they, it was incredible. And I've since tested other ads, and I found that the word snark, the keyword snark, if you will, has been good across the board. Now, I, I've, I've yet to catch lightning in the bottle 
like that first ad. But when I used snark, and I used it in my science fiction series, I included the word snark because I'm snarky. And sure enough, it, it helped conversion on the ad. I've learned that the words you, because, new, and instantly, when you're using those in ad copy, are also powerful words. And because is especially interesting because studies I have read indicate that it isn't so important what comes after the word because. Just it being there is a trigger to the reader that they should consider whatever the first statement was as more valid than without the because. And I find that interesting. And mm, so yeah. it, it is, uh, again, it, it all comes back to really paying close attention to what works and what doesn't. And with keywords, going back to your point of 10 or 15 minutes ago, things are always changing. You may come up with a methodology for your keywords. They may be great for six months. But in that time, there will be more books in your genre. Sometimes Amazon changes the way the what they have for categories for genre. There can be they can let the outside people that aren't exclusive into Amazon ads. Any of these triggers can cause a major shift in what is going on in the landscape. And so, just because you nailed your keywords today doesn't mean it's not worth reviewing. And when I do review, I always I go through each keyword and I rarely am replacing them wholesale. It's usually a case of there may be one keyword that is doing doing fine, but it's not playing in a very big pond. And since some of my other keywords that are in, in bigger ponds with me, and when I say ponds, I'm, I'm talking about the number of books if you do a search, so if you did a search on the word author, I, I don't know how many books that would be, but it's probably, or authorship or writing, that would probably be a lot of books on the subject of writing. If you narrowed it down to a longer tail keyword, meaning writing fiction, writing nonfiction, that's going to be a smaller pond that you're playing in. And so if you're a genre writer and you do science fiction, there might be 180,000. If you use the keyword literature, I looked that up once and it was 1.3 million. Hmm. That's a pretty big pond to be playing in. So you may want to choose something where it's four or 5,000. But as you get better at this game, being in the four or 5,000 pond, if your book is coming up on the first few pages, it's worthwhile to take a keyword, take it out, and try a different one that is in a pond that's ten to 20,000 keywords and try to sort of work up the ladder. Does that make sense? It does. Let me ask you, because we're getting short of time. Um, sure. One last question that I think you're, you're probably uniquely qualified to offer an opinion on. And that is – so for, for the author that's out there listening that maybe has a series with five titles. I'm just coming up with something off the top of sure. my head. Sure. Five titles, and they've never really spent any time – optimizing their descriptions and keywords and things like that. What they do is they're working during the day, they're spending all their free time writing and sure. you know, they want they're grinding away to get that next book out. Is it worth their time to to take a significant amount of time and study what they have and to optimize it or would they be better off writing the next book? 
That's a fantastic question. If you look at Sean Platt, uh, Johnny B. Truitt, and David Wright, their methodology was to write, publish, repeat, write, publish, repeat. And they produce, you know, I, I can't, don't quote me on this, but I think, you know, one point, Sean and Johnny maybe write 1.5 million words per year. And they did that for several years. I couldn't even tell you how much volume of high quality fiction. Well, and they have some nonfiction out as well mm-hmm. that they produced over that time. And it's worked very well for them. I have a lot fewer books. The, the answer is, well, it's kind of wishy-washy. You kind of got to do it the way that you're most comfortable because either path will get you to the finish line. At some point, you're, you want to understand the data. I don't think you can simply put out books, not ever look at the cover, is it any good, not ever look at the description, avoiding all things related to trying to improve the sales. But if right now you're most comfortable writing the books and getting them out, then figuring out how to sell them later on down the road is fine. You have to do it at some point, though. You don't just want to. I do know an author who has probably 30 books out, and I doubt she makes $100 a month. She just Hmm. has never been willing to try to sell the books. And so is there value in taking the time to figure this stuff out? Yes. But something I've learned this year, I have changed the way I run my day-to-day life in that I now track, because I'm a data nerd, how much time I spend on a bunch of different tasks each day. I know, for instance, that every day I want to, that seven days a week, I'm going to spend at least an hour writing and at least an hour working. It doesn't mean I'm not going to spend more time than that. I'm a full-time author, but I'm never going to take a day off from those tasks. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. I spent 30 hours working in January, 30, like 32 or 33 hours writing. I mean, the bare minimum through the month. And I had my most productive month ever. I, I, I crushed it. There was something about having that fixed time and as a task and holding myself accountable that allowed me to write more quickly and I always have several projects going on, some nonfiction, like the book that we're talking about, making more money, and then, of course, my fiction. And by knowing, okay, I'm going to write today, but I couldn't figure out what to write on the fiction, so I would jump into the nonfiction or vice versa. And so my productivity went through the roof. I would say to a person that is asking that question about should they take time off, I wouldn't go wholesale and spend three months not writing and just learning all this stuff. But boy, if you're spending an hour or two, and that's all you have because you need to feed your children, you need to work, even if you have 30 minutes, if you picked an amount of time per day to do this stuff and just did it consistently while you're doing the thing you really love, I would wager that 30 days from now, you would be shocked at how much you had progressed. And I think you'd probably have more success than taking the time off from the something you love and working on something that you're not as sure about. How does that sound? Brian, that, that is a fantastic answer. We've been speaking with Brian Meeks. He's the author of The Prosperous Writer's Guide to Making More Money, Habits, Tactics, and Strategies for Making a Living as a Writer. The book is 
available today. It's available at Amazon only. Is that right? Um, that Yes, that is correct. And I should mention, though, my co-author is Honoré Quarter, Who is a, a favorite on this show. We love uh, having Honoré on. I hope to have her on again soon. Where can people find out more about you, Brian? Uh, the best bet is reach out to me on Facebook. I'm, I hang out on Facebook a lot. And I hang out in the group 20 Books to 50K, uh, which is a group on Facebook that is open to anyone. So that's a great place to reach me. All right. So again, we've been speaking with Brian Meeks. Remember, you can find show notes and links to everything we mentioned today, including looks, links to Brian's new book at theauthorbiz.com. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back again next Monday.